Well, it is the start of summer, right? Woo! Yeah, yeah, someone's excited. Uh, it's the end of the school season. Woohoo! I know I get some excitement down there for that one. Yeah, it's vacation time, great time of season. Uh, it's also a time for a new sermon series, as we've just finished off the uh, series. Oh, somebody didn't like Playbook. Okay. We just finished Playbook, and there wasn't a fan. That's okay. Maybe you'll like this one. <laughs> so, yeah, we just finished our walk through the book of Ephesians, which we had called Playbook. Um, all those messages are online. If you're interested and missed any, you can get those at our website and listen to them there or, schedule, or uh, subscribe through iTunes. You can listen to them, download through there. And so today we start a new season, that our, a new series that will take us through the summer season, and it's called 316. So you might be wondering, what does that mean? Well, let me explain that to you. If you were to ask somebody to quote for you a Bible verse, even if, even if they're not believers, there's a chance that even if they're not Christians and never been to church, there's a chance there's one that they would know. It, John 3.16, right? One of the most famous verses that, uh, that we find in Scripture. And if somebody, whether they're in church or out of the church, can quote John 3.16 for you, that, that's good news. Like, like literally, that's good news because that's actually the good news of the Bible. It's, it, it's, it's the core of Christianity. It's a one-sentence summary of the Bible's main story of the hope that all people have in Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. A little while back, a couple years back actually, I was just going through the Bible over a few weeks of sort of personal study and reflection. And, and, and just sort of where my studying took me, I was struck by how many incredibly great passages there are in Scripture that include a reference 316. It's not just John 3.16 that has a great message behind it, that there's tons of other passages in Scripture that have a 316 included in the incredible teachings they have. And so I thought to myself, you know, one day that would make a great series to do. So this summer, we are going to be walking through all, not all, but a number of the 316s that we find in Scripture. So each week, um, myself and, and the other pastors and one or two other guest speakers are going to come, and we're going to be focusing upon a passage of Scripture that will include as its central emphasis a 316. And as we go through this, we're going to cover a diversity of topics this summer. We're going to talk about things like faith and wisdom and love and peace and, and Christian virtues and what does it mean to respond to the call that God places upon a person's life. And I think you're going to really enjoy the, the myriad of lessons and topics we cover, but there's one other great thing about this summer series, is that if you hear a lesson or a message that you really, really like and you want to share it with somebody, you'll know where to find it because you'll be like, where was that found? You'll be like... I know, 316, that's where it was, because they're all going to include a 316. So you already know the references for the entire summer series that we're going to have. All you have to remember is the book that goes with the 316 this summer. So to kick things off, it only seems appropriate that we start with that most well-known verse of all the verses in the Bible, but the most well-known 316 as well, with John 316 that we'll look at today. Now, John 3.16 finds itself within a greater passage, a greater story, obviously found in the book of John, chapter 3, but through verses 1 through verse 21 is the group that we find it in. And now, whenever somebody preaches on a familiar text like this, it can be a little bit tricky. It can be tricky because you're all familiar with the passage. You probably already know it. You've already heard it. You've heard people unpack it and dig into a bit in the past. You've read it perhaps even recently, and so it's very familiar to you. 
At the same time, when we read things on a very regular basis, or when we see them on a regular basis, we have this natural tendency to kind of gloss over them a little bit. To go, yeah, I know what, like, I'm just going to read beyond that and get to the next stuff because I, I know that one. And if that happens, there's a chance that you might miss something deeper. You might miss some of the subtle elements that actually can be found within what is so familiar. For example, consider some of these familiar, uh, some familiar logos you've probably seen before, such as, as FedEx. You've probably seen the FedEx logo before, or trucks going down the road, or a package that arrives. But have you ever noticed that inside the FedEx logo is a little arrow that they intentionally put in there for delivery? This idea of, of delivering, of movement that they show within a little subtle detail of that logo. Or how about the Amazon logo? What's Amazon's motto? We have everything from A to Z is how they market themselves. And with writing within their logo, you see they have everything from A to Z within the logo. Here's another one. Baskin Robbins. We got to love ice cream. It's summer. It's hot. Ice cream. Baskin Robbins. How many flavors does Baskin Robbins have? 31. 31 flavors right inside the logo that you find there as well. Uh, here's one that I, I hadn't seen before that is familiar, but there are subtleties to it that had just eluded me in the past. Uh, Toyota, for example. If you look at the letters Toyota, put into those symbols, all combined, form the logo on their cars. Subtle things that you would, you just kind of gloss over. I know Toyota. I've seen Toyota before. But did you know that all the letters are contained within, within the logo? And then sometimes our minds can play tricks with us. We can, we can miss some things as well, such as this picture of a tree for the Pittsburgh Zoo. But if you look closely, do you see the gorilla and the lion? They'll pop out. You see, we've got to be careful we don't gloss over things. Just because it's familiar, we've seen it before, there can be subtleties that we miss if we're not careful as we go. And so as we look at John 3.16 today, the essential idea is clear. I'm not going to try to tell you you've missed the core of the message. I, I'm sure the essential idea you've picked up on and you've grasped. But at the same time, perhaps as we go through it today, we can look for some deeper layers of meaning. We can look for some, some, perhaps some new knowledge you hadn't seen before and new things that you can apply to your life. Because there might be more going on than you first realize as we look at this passage. And so as we get into it, as you've read it probably time and time again, let's have a look at it again and see it again for the first time. Because this passage in John chapter 3 opens with a conversation that happens one night between Jesus and a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Now, to find this story in the setting of Jesus' life, Jesus has been on the scene for a little while now. By this point, he's called his disciples. He's been doing some miracles. He's been teaching for a time already. He's already entered into some conflict with the other Pharisees, with, with that group of religious leaders who are at odds with him. Uh, and he's, he's just cleansed the temple. He's just cleared the temple and flipped over tables. And, and perhaps even that very night, because this is the next story that follows that in the Gospel of John, perhaps even that very night, one of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, comes to speak with Jesus. Now, i got to imagine that within Nicodemus, there must have been some tension going on. Because on one hand, he's part of this group that is at odds with Jesus. That is, 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 there's friction whenever they meet, and there, there's debate and, and discussion and, and tension within those conversations. And, and Nicodemus is supposed to be part of this group who is a spiritual guide to the nation of Israel. And part of that responsibility is to protect them against heretics who would lead them astray. And some of his, his counterparts are starting to think, you know, this Jesus guy is a heretic. And yet, he's, Nicodemus is intrigued. There's something intriguing. There's something that draws Nicodemus to Jesus that, he, that he, he just can't kick. And so he goes this one evening 
to meet with Jesus. At risk of career, at risk of the high social status that he has achieved as a Pharisee, he privately seeks out an audience with Jesus. And, and when he finds him and, and he gets him alone, he says to him, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For nobody, nobody could perform the signs that you were doing if God was not with him. Now, it's a statement of respect, which is unfamiliar to Jesus from, from Pharisees. Where Nicodemus calls him rabbi, he says, we know you're a teacher. But everyone knew he had no formal teaching or no formal, uh, you know, history as being trained up as a rabbi. And so to appoint him, to acknowledge him as a rabbi, was a pretty significant, pretty respectful statement for this teacher of the law, this expert of the Jewish things, to say to Jesus. And he also gives some evidence in here that, that there's been a lot of discussions going on about how can these things be happening with Jesus and where does God fit into it? And so he reveals that through these conversations the Pharisees have been having, that they've kind of reached a point by saying, Jesus, we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. We don't know what's happening. We're, we're not good with it. But nobody could possibly do these things unless God fit into the puzzle somewhere. Now, he's kind of affirming Jesus in a way, if you think about it, as he calls him a teacher. And he goes, okay, God is, is, is with you in this, as he affirms him. But notice in those verses, he never states what he wants. He never states why he came to actually talk to Jesus. Well, if you were to look at one verse prior to John chapter 3, verse 1, the last verse of John chapter 2, John gives us this tidbit of information in verse 25 where he says, Jesus knew what was in each person. And it seems like in John chapter 3, John is saying, and this is what that looks like when he met Nicodemus. Because Jesus doesn't respond to the affirmations that he's receiving. Instead, he seems to demonstrate that he knew what was in Nicodemus. He, he, knew, the, he knew the issue, the tension, the question boiling up with inside him. And so Jesus kind of changes the subject, if you will. He, he kind of cuts to the chase. He gets to the real issue when he responds to Nicodemus by saying, Truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born of both water and the Spirit. You see, Jesus isn't interested in authenticating his miracles. He doesn't want to get into that theological discourse on that. He knows that there's a deeper issue at hand. He wants to move Nicodemus to the real issue that's at hand, and that is his relationship with God. Now, this likely catches Nicodemus off guard. Because it's a pretty forward statement. When he shows up and says, hey, rabbi, teacher, there's respectful things to say to you, and I want to affirm that we know that you're a teacher, and that, you know God must be with you. And Jesus sort of, his words kind of point him in the chest, right in the heart, and goes, how's your relationship with God? It's essentially the response that he gets, which would put Nicodemus kind of on his heels a little bit. And so as Nicodemus is trying to track with what is going on here, with what Jesus is saying, he says what a lot of us would say. He says, well... What do you mean by born again? Which is a valid question. And I think his confusion is actually shared by a lot of confusion that exists in the world around us today. If you were to talk to somebody on the street or in your office or in your school or, or sitting beside somebody on the bus, not that you would necessarily ask them this question, but if you were to ask a person just in the general public, what does it mean to be born again? There's going to be a lot of confusion as to what that means. A lot of people might automatically go where Nicodemus went, to, the, to this idea of a physical rebirth, going, how in the world can a person be physically reborn again? Like, that is impossible. 
And they'd be right, because that's not what Jesus was talking about. If you ask somebody what does it mean to be reborn, they might go, well, you're talking about reincarnation, where we live a life, we die, and then we're reborn into another life. And, and if we're good, we're a better human. If we're bad, we're a cockroach, right? This idea of reincarnation, they might think that's what reincarnation, that's what being born again means. Or maybe they think it's, it's a Christian makeover kind of thing. She's got new hairs, new nails, new attitude, and she's now born again Christian. They may not know what it means, right? And Jesus knew that Nicodemus' greatest need was not to grow in more knowledge. It was not to grow in new rituals and new practices that he could add to his life. He knew that Nicodemus' greatest need was he needed a new heart, that he needed a spiritual transformation to take place within him, that if Nicodemus was going to enter into the kingdom of God that he had been studying and committing his life to, that he needed to become a child of God. He needed to be born again. And now there's different ways of understanding what does it mean to be born again or to be, to be born of water and of the Spirit. But when we put those two things together, those two types of rebirth, there's a connected nature between the two. You see, most people would look at this idea of being born of water as, as a reference to baptism. But more, more specifically, a, a reference to what baptism signifies. Because baptism signifies Repentance. Now, remember the time in which this was taking place. While Jesus was teaching and doing miracles, who else was on the scene just before that and during that time still was John the Baptist. And what was John's message? John came preaching a message of baptism of repentance for sins. John came preaching this message of baptism, this deliberate deliberate turning from a life of sin to prepare your life, to be cleansed, to prepare your life for the Messiah who was to come. And that Messiah, as we know, because we know the end of the story, was to be revealed as Jesus Christ. But also to be born of the Spirit is that when a person repents and they place their faith in Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross, that Scripture tells us they become new creations, that in that moment that they become a child of God. John talked about this in John chapter 1, in verses 12 and 13, where he says, to those who believed in his name, to those who believed in the name of Jesus Christ, God gave the right to become children of God. Not children born of human decision, not children born of natural descent, like we think about a rebirth, a physical rebirth, not that, but children born of God, born of the Spirit, to be citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Now, as Jesus explains this to Nicodemus, he's a little surprised that that he doesn't get it. He's a little surprised that Nicodemus is baffled by this because he's supposed to be an expert in the law. He's supposed to be one of these teachers of the people, a great spiritual leader of the nation of Israel. And Jesus kind of points out, you should have seen this. You should have seen this coming. Because this idea of being born of water and born of spirit isn't new. Jesus wasn't the first person to talk about this. The prophets from centuries earlier had talked about it. Nicodemus would have studied these passages where where the prophet Joel and Isaiah and Ezekiel promised that the day would come when God would would, would sprinkle clean water on his people. It says in Ezekiel 26, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will give you a new heart and put my spirit in you. See, it's important to understand the need that all of us have to experience this transformation, this need that we all have to be born again. And when people try to get themselves right with God, this isn't often the way that they go. 
because whether through, through their own ideas, own philosophies, or, or the, the directions or philosophies of other religions, what typically happens, the conclusion people typically arrive at of what we need to do to get right with God is that you start with, you take who you are, and then you add a ritual. Or you take away an activity. Or you got to be more like your teacher. But those things never deal with the core issue. The core issue is at the beginning of who you are. Because the reality that Jesus is pointing out here is that he's starting to unpack and build for us is at the very core root, at the very core issue, is that humanity is broken beyond repair. And Jesus was not coming onto the scene. Jesus did not arrive to fix people. He didn't arrive to just add a ritual or to add a belief or to give you a service order of plan to follow, to add to the existing. And it doesn't work within our spiritual lives. And it certainly didn't work on my friend Alex's car in high school. Everybody have those high school cars where they're breaking down all the time? If it's not the brakes, it's the tires. If it's not the tires, it's leaking oil. If it's not leaking oil, it's the starter. If it's not the starter, the transmission's grinding. Anyone have one of those cars in high school? Probably a number of us, because that's a high school kind of car that you have. And it doesn't matter how much money or time or effort you put into keeping that thing running, eventually it reaches the point where the mechanic goes, there's nothing left to do. I can't do anything more to it. It doesn't matter how much time or money you put into it. The car is dead. It is broken beyond all repair. It doesn't matter how many service agreements. It doesn't matter how many maintenance plans. It doesn't matter how much care and effort you put into it. The only thing left for that car to be done is sent to the auto wrecker, crushed, melted down, sent back to the factory so that a new one can be produced and put back on the market. And that's kind of what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, you are not a fixer-upper. Jesus didn't come to take a fixer-upper and make it a classic. Jesus came to make you a new creation. He came to give you a new identity, to give you a new life that you could be defined as a child of God. And so when Nicodemus hears all this, he asks a very simple question, but a profound question. How can that be? How can that be? And so Jesus points back to an Old Testament example that Nicodemus would be sure to understand as he says this in verse 14 and 15. He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is a reference back to book of Numbers chapter 21. Yes, there are some good stories in the book of Numbers. It's not just Numbers. There's some good stories like this one you can find in there. There's a lot of Numbers too, but you'll find some good stories like this one too. Where due to the disobedience of the nation of Israel, God sends a plague among them. A plague of poisonous snakes. That, that's pretty nasty. Of poisonous snakes. And as people are, are, are being bitten by these things, Moses consults with God to cry out to him and say, how do, we, how do we turn the tide? How do we overcome this? How do we fix this? And God says, I want you to make an image of a snake. Hold it up on a pole. And then all those who are suffering, all those who are in need of healing can look upon that and be healed. And so as we know, in Jesus' life, and as he was revealing to Nicodemus in these moments, the day would come when Jesus would be lifted up upon a pole as well. So that all who look upon him, so that all who believe in him, all who will repent of the past sins and want to be made new, can look upon him, become a child of God, and inherit that eternal life. 
which brings us to the central verse of this story. But not just Nicodemus' story. It brings us to the central verse of God's story, the central verse of the scriptures that he's revealed himself to us in. The core of Christianity, that one sentence summary of the entire gospel as John next writes these words, where he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. The essential idea is clear but I invite you to see it again for the first time. Because as you read it, and as we understand, even a child can read and understand the beautiful significance of this passage. But there's layers of deeper meaning that fit within the context of the story that it takes place within. Where John writes, for God so loved the world. This was an astonishing statement, maybe to us a little bit, but to Nicodemus, this would have blown his mind. Because up until this very point, the only time scriptures talked about God loving a people was God loves the nation of Israel. This is the first time that we find it written, for God so loved the world. And so to say that God's love extends beyond things like like race and nationality is an amazing fact that holds true to this very day. And the world he's talking about here is not the physical world of plants, trees, and animals, and, and the sky, and things like that. That's not the world he's talking about. When he talks about the world, he's talking about humanity's spiritual brokenness. About humanity who is spiritually broken beyond repair. And how God, like a loving Father in heaven, looks down and sees that brokenness in those that he loves. And has to take action has to step in to bring salvation. And the way he steps in and brings salvation is by giving his one and only son. So that even though this world, who, who, this humanity who is in opposition to the things of God, even this world who is hostile to the things of God, and even in the past and in the present world, God, out of love for them, for all people, not just some, for all people, made the ultimate sacrifice in giving his one and only son. What does that mean that he gave his son? That means that his son descended from heaven, did not consider equality with God, something to be be held and grasped for his own advantage, but released that in humility, submitted himself to become obedient as a human on earth with us, to live, to teach, to to reveal the attributes, the character, the plan, the will, the kingdom of God, to reveal that to people that God loves so much, but then ultimately to suffer and to die as he was lifted up upon the cross to pay the price for your sins and for mine. And because of God's love for all people, that sacrifice was made on the behalf of all people so that whoever would believe in him whoever would go beyond themselves, beyond trusting themselves, beyond saying, oh, I guess you gotta take who I am and add things to it, who I am and take away the bad things. Whoever would stop trusting themselves and trust something beyond themselves, whoever would believe in him, whoever would believe in him, place their, trace, their, their trust and their hope in him, willing to accept that it's not about being a fixer-upper, willing to accept that it's about the need to be born again, so that whoever believes in him to those who would become children of God, born of both water and spirit, that they would not perish, but instead that they would have eternal life. Because the day will come when every person will stand before God. That day will come when we all stand before God and we have to give an account. 
And in God's holy justice, in that moment, he will declare who is with him for eternity and who is not. To those who believe and have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they receive the joy and the blessing of an eternal existence with him. And it's a reality that can exist in a person's life this very day. It finds its fulfillment in heaven, but it begins in a person's life in the here and now. In this life, we live in this world where we can get a taste of that joy and excitement and the peace and the blessings of being in a relationship with God. Now, when you first heard this verse, when people in the world outside the church walls first heard this verse, there's quite often two responses. There's two reactions to it. Some people will respond with thankfulness. They will respond with gratefulness and they will get on side with, with, with the things that Christ has accomplished for them. And they will surrender their lives and repent and place their faith and belief in him for eternal life. But there's others who as soon as they hear those words, they feel like they're offside. They feel like there's me and there's God and there's no hope. And they start to feel a bit of a judgment from God or from those who are onside with God's promise. Here's the thing. The focus of this verse is upon eternal life. But there is an implication in here that if you don't believe that you're not saved. In this claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved, some people see that as the scandal of the good news. Because in today's age in particular, it is offensive to believe that a good person who dies without having placed their faith in Jesus Christ will face eternal condemnation. But that's the Christian view. The Christian view is that even if somebody is a nice, moral, ethical person, if they do not accept Jesus Christ in this lifetime, they will be lost forever. But it goes a step beyond that. A step beyond that to say even the worst of the worst if they truly repent, and if they truly place their faith in Jesus Christ, that they will be saved and have eternal life with him. That bothers a lot of people. That is the scandal of the good news that bothers a lot of people and will actually be a bit of a repellent to coming to accept the things of Christ. But that's why the next verse is so important. That's why where Jesus goes with it afterwards is so critical to understand. Because he says in verse 17 and 18 that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't the goal. That wasn't the point. He sent his son into the world to save the world through him. The focus is upon salvation. The focus is upon the fact that there is a hope. There is a way. There is a truth and a light and a life that is available to all people. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But it is true that whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already. See, this is the radical message of Jesus Christ. Is that your sin, my sin, the sin of every person is worse than we imagine. From human standards, we may be able to gauge a person's level of sin as one person is a worse sinner than another. But from God's standard, Scripture tells us that all people are sinners that nobody is truly good when compared to God's holiness. 
And so we might be able to compare ourselves to one another and go, they're better than this person, better than this person, worse than this person. We can do that calculation from a human standard, but from God's perspective, all people are sinners. All people have fallen short of God. There is no such thing as a truly good person when compared to who God is. We don't understand how bad sin is. But at the same time, we don't understand grace. Grace that we don't deserve and yet we receive. That sin is worse than we imagined, but grace is better than we deserve. See, the gospel is not about making bad people good. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. That's what he came for. He didn't come to make the bad good. He came so that the dead could be alive and be alive eternally. And Jesus, God's only son, given out of love so that we have a choice, so that we have an opportunity that did not exist beforehand to believe in him and to live. And God's desire is that all who enter into this relationship with him would make that choice. But as we know, there are many who won't. There's many who won't. You can even think back to the time when Jesus was finally lifted up upon that cross, when that moment came. I remember as he was nailed to that cross, there's a criminal on one side and on the other. Both of those criminals were guilty and deserving of the punishment that they received. And yet Jesus, with outstretched arms, with his arms outstretched, offered salvation to both. Now, on one side, that criminal was still hardened in his heart and trusted in himself and just hurled insults and, and just mocked Jesus, going, some savior you are. You call yourself a Messiah? You can't even save yourself. How are you going to save me? But a criminal on the other side confessed his guilt, confessed the innocence of Christ, ceased to look upon himself and instead looked upon the one who was lifted up and received that day the salvation that he so desperately needed. You see, every person is on one side of the cross or the other. And John describes these two positions as living in darkness or living in light. See, Jesus is the light that has come into the world. And who you declare Jesus to be will determine which side of the cross that we're on. Because the light reveals our choice. John says in verse 20 that everyone who does evil hates the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. You see, light has this revealing quality. It causes people to have to face the reality of their actions, to, to face the reality of the choices they've made, to face the reality that we are truly broken people, that there is truly no good people because all of us are sinful. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Light causes us to have to face that. And the enemy doesn't like that. The enemy that we battle against will tell us a lie is to say, well, here's the solution. Just don't go into the light. If you can't see the bad, there is no bad. Just stay in the darkness. When I read that and think of it, it reminds me of a few decades ago when they were still allowed to advertise cigarettes. Remember that magazines and billboards had these cigarette advertisements? Like this one, for example, Newport Cigarettes, Alive with Pleasure. Anybody remember those from back in the 80s, even earlier? You see, the message here is that look at all the fun you can have. Smoke cigarettes. You can go play basketball, which is ironic, right? 
I won't even unpack that, but there's irony in that. Look how much fun it is. Don't pay no downside. There's no downside. Don't pay attention to that. Pay attention to the cigarettes and the basketball. The downside, cancer, heart disease, emphysema. You see, society reached a point where it said, no, we need to shed light on this. There's a downside to smoking, and we need to shed light on it, which is why you don't find advertisements anymore for these types of things. There's reg- rules and regulations that when you can, can't do it because there's a light that was shined on the downside of these actions. The same is true with our sinful situations and actions that we enter into. Alive with pleasure, the enemy says. Just go do it. Be alive with pleasure. There's no downside. But we need to have the light shine on it to say, no, there's a bigger story. There's a bigger situation. Because whoever comes into the light, whoever lives by the truth, is the one who comes into the light. So that it may be seen plainly what they do, that God may see plainly what they do. You see, Jesus is that light who reveals the sin in our lives, not for the purpose of condemnation, but so that we can look upon it and then look upon Jesus and be healed from it. You see, when we live in the light of the truth of Jesus Christ, we no longer have any reason to fear the the light because there's nothing for us to be ashamed of or feel guilty about as it comes into the light because it is dealt with. We no longer need to fear and recoil from it because it has been paid for upon the cross. So there's nothing to be afraid of that will be revealed by the light because what we are doing is in alignment with who God is. Parents, when a child's up to no good, you can't find them, right? When they're doing something they know is bad, they go hide somewhere and they're really, really quiet. And you know they're up to something because the house is too quiet. There's something going on. You call for them. You're like, where are you? Silence. Because you know, And you know they're up to something. But at the same time, when a child is doing something good, what do they do? They call out, Mom, Dad, come see what I did. They want to come into the light. That's the difference in our lives, our actions, if we live in the darkness or live in light. If we live in the light and the truth of Jesus Christ as those new creations who have been born again, we have nothing to fear from the light. We can stand in the light with arms stretched and say, come and see what I did. And receive the pleasure of our Heavenly Father. But there's another type of hiding that happens as well at times. Not just just hiding our sins and our actions. There's another type of hiding we can actually see in the story of Nicodemus. Is that sometimes we hide our faith from the world around us. See, Nicodemus came to see Jesus at night. Was that because Jesus had a busy schedule and just couldn't kind of slot him in during the day? Probably not. It's most likely Nicodemus didn't want other people to know that he was intrigued by the things of Christ. And if we're living like that, that can be harmful to our relationship with God. Imagine for a second in, in, in your married life, if you went out in public and never, never claimed your spouse as the one you're married to. Married? I'm not married. And she's standing like right there. That's not going to go well for you. Right? That, I think we would agree that is harmful to your relationship if, if you do that type of a thing. Well, the same thing can be true when it comes to our relationship with God. Because Jesus said, this is a two-way street, folks. If you deny me before others, I will deny you before my Father. You see, if we are truly born again, if we are truly children of God, then that name that we bear needs to be bared proudly as we walk through this world for the world to see. Proud that we are children, sons and daughters 
of our Heavenly Father. At the same time, keep this in mind. Never, never assume that people already know about Jesus. Never assume that they already understand what the word Christian means. We cannot make that assumption in today's world anymore. Because there are people in your life that have no idea that there's a heavenly father who loved them enough to send his son to die for them. There are people who have no idea that that exists and that they could have eternal life. And so if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he has placed people in your life who do not yet know that, that you have the opportunity to live that out before, proudly live that out before, but also declare it to with words when the time comes. And so if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, do not walk publicly in the shadows, but step out into the light and let your light shine before all people. Do you remember that, remember that children's song? I don't, know if, I don't know if they sing it in the last 10 decades, the last 10 years, the last decade or so. Remember that song, This Little Light of Mine? Let me see your lights. This little light of mine. What are we going to do? I'm going to let it shine. Yeah. Am I going to hide it under a bush? Oh, no. Why? Because I'm going to let it shine, right? How does it go? I'm going to let Satan blow it out? No. Why? Because I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine all around this world. I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine until Jesus comes because I'm going to let it shine. Let your lights shine for the world to see. Because Jesus came not to condemn the world, but he came to save it. He is the light of the world. He is the one who loved the world so much that sent his one only son so that you and me, so that your friends, so that your families, so that the people of Lewis Farms around us, so that whoever believes shall not perish, but they will have eternal life. Jesus accomplished this when he was lifted up upon that cross. So that whoever looks upon him, looks beyond themselves to look to him and confesses that, yes, I have sinned. Yes, I can't just be a fixer-upper. I need to confess my sinfulness and be reborn. Whoever believes that that happens through Jesus Christ will become a child of God and inherit that eternal life.